Welcome to MNI's FedSpeak podcast. I'm your host, Pedro da Costa, and it's an honor to welcome today's special guest. He is Dr. Simon Johnson, a professor of entrepreneurship at MIT Sloan School of Management, where he is also the head of the Global Economics and Management Group. Simon is a former chief economist at the International Monetary Fund, and he co-chairs the CFA Institute's Systemic Risk Council. He's also on the board of directors of Fannie Mae. Simon is the author of several books, including 13 Bankers, White House Burning, Jumpstarting America, and most recently, Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity, which explores the history and economics of major technological transformation and argues that we should maintain a cautious skepticism of the idea that technological progress automatically makes everyone better off. Thank you so much for being here, Simon. My pleasure. I really want to leave some time to discuss the book, which I found very interesting and which I strongly recommend to our listeners. But I also want to start with the news of the day, the Fed's decision this week that seems to have left markets a little bit befuddled. So basically, they decided to pause interest rate hikes, but at the same time signal that there are potentially two more or potentially even more to come. I wonder what you make of the decision to start with and where you think they've come in this cycle. Well, well, they've obviously come a long way, Pedro. <laughs> and I think they are still trying to understand the persistence of inflation uh, and the way in which it has lasted and why it has lasted. And it's a tough, it's a tough problem. So I, I'm, I'm glad I'm not in their shoes. But I, that's, I think they're, they're grappling that they haven't yet sorted out in their own minds, which is pretty fair. What is your expectation for how sticky inflation is likely to remain? And how much further do you think the Fed might have to go in that context? So I, I think inflation is under control, uh, Pedro. I, I, when I you know, talk to people about all kinds of things, including the context of the new book, I'm giving a lot of talks, diff- very different kinds of people who have tons of interesting questions about the economy, where it's going, where it's coming. The topic of inflation hasn't come up in the past six weeks. Now, ordinarily, and six months ago, it did come up. Whenever you said economics, people said inflation, let's talk about it. Now it's you know topic number 20 or something on their priority list. And if if, if people aren't, worried about it, that means they're not pressing for higher prices, they're not pressing for higher wages. I, I think we've got past uh, the worst of it. How much pain do you expect the Fed needs to, there's this notion that, that Chair Powell even repeated in the press conference that there needs to be a certain amount of economic pain to get this last two percentage points of inflation down for some, from four, four and a half down back to the 2% target. How much labor market damage do you think they need to inflict in order to actually accomplish that goal? Well, I, I think that's a very dangerous and inappropriate framing um, for monetary policy, which which I agree is what you hear from the top officials. But, you know, when they say pain in the labor market or damage labor market, these are euphemisms, right, for um, higher unemployment and, and, and pressing down the wages of lower income people. And I think that the economy rebounds the economy on the backs of people who've already done badly. Okay, it did a little bit better, actually, some of them uh, during COVID and after COVID, in part because labor force participation fell, so there was less competition in that part of the labor market, and the demand for labor was relatively strong. But I, I think the idea that you necessarily have to inflict pain on those people, I, I think it's really, really unappealing. And I'm not sure it's true. I mean, I think there's plenty of ways in which an economy like this can have a softer landing. You can bring inflation under control. I do think there are financial stability risks and issues within that, but that's also a Fed responsibility and, and an issue that we should lay at their door. So I, I don't, I don't accept the idea that there's a necessary pain part of disinflation. So I assume that you also don't think that wage growth is playing a, a primary role in driving these inflationary forces that we've had. 
Well, I, I think there were disruptions on the supply side, and that was pressure on prices. But also, you can think of disruption on the supply side in terms of where was the labor, was the labor where you needed it. Restaurants laid off people, wanted to hire them back, people who'd moved on to other activities. So, I mean, there's a wage element there, but I don't think we're in a wage price spiral of the kind that we've seen in other countries, uh, such as Brazil uh, or the UK or other places over the past 40 or 50 years. I don't think we're there at all. So I don't and we, you know, we don't have strong trade unions. We don't have uh, wage bargaining like we like we used to. So I don't think wages are a primary driving force at this at this stage. Okay. now you mentioned financial stability. Part of the rationale for the Fed's pause is the possibility that the there might be some credit tightening emanating from the regional banking turmoil that we saw in March. Where do you think we are in that turmoil? Do you think that the worst is over? What do you make of the Fed's response? And what do you make of the the idea that the Fed, which is in charge of supervising these banks, largely missed this risk? Okay, let's break that into a couple of pieces. Uh, First of all, on the credit tightening, I think that there were uh, legitimate and fairly intense concerns right after the cluster of failures and, and semi-failures, bailouts. And, and those fears, which I shared, seem to have been a little bit exaggerated or, or more negative than, than justified. So I think the credit tightening, we, we've come through that and, and that there isn't sort of, it's, it's not like that that is pushing us into a deep recession or anything like that. It is interesting and perhaps even ironic that the Fed is now taking its foot off the brake, uh, so not raising interest rates as much. Because they're worried about financial stability issues that they themselves helped cause. <laughs> and in my view, they should be taking their foot off the brake. They shouldn't have caused the financial stability difficulties, but maybe it all washes out in the end. It's hard to say. It would be better for everyone if banks didn't collapse or come to the verge of collapse. Uh, that's a level of uncertainty we don't need. But how do, can the Fed really separate those two sides of policy? It's It's tried to keep financial stability policy apart from monetary policy, but as you suggested, the two tend to interact pretty heavily. Oh, they interact massively. And, and I think that's always been known. The Fed for a long time, particularly under Greenspan, ignored financial stability issues completely. I mean, the, the view that, that actually Ben Bernanke articulated right before and, and, and when he joined the, the board of governors, so before he was chair, was, you know, don't worry about what happens in financial markets. There's going to be boom bust cycles. You can always clean up afterwards. So that was the view 20 some years ago. I don't think that's the view anymore, but it is still the case that the financial stability policy considerations and, and implementation supervision is not something that's as deeply ingrained in, in Fed DNA as monetary policy. I think they did a better job after the Great Recession, but then from 2018 on, they really, with some you know encouragement from congressional Republicans and, and, and Democrats and President Trump, they once again took their eye off the financial supervision ball. So... That is why we've got these problems and why we've got some some down, still some significant down, downside risk. But it's always there. All central banks have to grapple with it. And any central bank that tells you they're not responsible for financial stability, I think just hasn't been paying attention in the last couple of decades. Do you think we need substantial regulatory reform post-SVB? And what do you expect? Well, I think we should go back to where we were in 2018. I think that's what Michael Barr has indicated will be the policy. And of course, what Congress did in, in a sort of usual congressional manner was they, they provided guidance and encouragement and cover for what they wanted the Fed to do. And, and then Randall Qualls and Chair Powell implemented that, or maybe even took it further than Congress wanted, hard to say. So what you need to do is, is wind that back. Now, Mr. Qualls has left the Fed board, so that's easy. Mr. Powell is still there, so that's awkward. 
But, you know, it was a mistake, a big mistake, an unnecessary mistake. And it just needs to be undone. I mean, it, it, it's a little embarrassing, sure. But, you know, sometimes you just have to say, oops, that was a mistake. There seem to be a lot of mea culpas in their review of SVB, surprisingly so. So The review of SVB, SVB, I thought was really good. I thought Michael, the Barr report was excellent. I think that they, you know, this is the advantage of having new people come in and, and take a fresh look. There are some structural issues still. I, I think it's very uncomfortable and inappropriate that banks sit on the board of regional feds. There's no other part of American public life where anyone would regard it as acceptable that the people who are being supervised sit on the board that hires and fires the top management of the supervisor. <laughs> That's just not an American thing to do, okay? Some other countries we might name, yes, sure. United States, no. So they should stop that, and that would require congressional action, so we'll see what happens there. But other than that, I think that they um, there's an understanding that they just you know didn't follow through on the supervisory side in terms of when they changed monetary policy, when they when they were indicating they had to tighten, they did not push the banks to to really follow through on that. And going back previously, in in the more expansion part of the cycle, and even during COVID, they did not encourage the banks to be careful enough. I mean, the banks. This is an inherent problem of banking, right? Bank bank bankers, the people who run banks, have an incentive to take a lot of risk because they're generally paid on the basis of return on equity, unadjusted for risk. So they take a lot of risk. They have too much leverage too much maturity transformation, you know, plays out in different ways. And and the Fed forgot that to its cost and to our cost. Now, just to, before we get into the book, just to put a fine point on your policy views, given the decision yesterday and the confusion between the pause and the, and the raising of the dots, do you expect them to raise interest rates further? Or do you think that this is kind of an attempt to buy some time in order to make the pause an actual hold? Having been at the IMF, where our job was to talk confidentially to central banks uh, and, and not to criticize them in public, they're, they're always quite clear about that. You know, I'm pretty sympathetic to the idea that they should see, watch the data based on the data, make their decisions. I think in, in a sort of short term, connect the, the pieces of the puzzle. They, they do quite well on that. I personally think that the inflation numbers will recede. I think we're still seeing echo effects of the supply shocks. I think those are going to uh, become less intense, which would support the view that interest rates are already at the right level, right level for, for now, and a level that's consistent with returning to the Fed's medium-term uh, inflation target. So I think they should be patient. And I, and I really don't think inflation is a disturbance or distraction to the economy at current levels. Now, there's a lot of things going on in the world, geopolitical risk, what happens in oil prices, potential tensions with China, and so on. So all of my statements are valid as of this moment when we're talking, Pedro, tomorrow of course, may bring some fundamental shift in, in global politics or economics. So then we'd have to reassess. Fair enough. Well, let's let's turn to your new project, this really interesting and extensive examination of power and progress over the last thousand years. My first question is, I guess, what makes you so concerned about what you refer to as techno-optimism? And what are some of the ways that you think we can counter the idea that technology always makes everyone better? Well, I think the main problem, Pedro, is that there is this deference to authority, where authority means the techno entrepreneurs, the billionaires, and so on. And when they opine on, for example, the great benefits that AI will bring us, or, or some other tech shifts also, but AI is obviously the flavor of the month or the year, I, I think we should be, we should listen, we should pay attention, we should be skeptical that these technologies really deliver what's promised. And we should be pushing them through all appropriate means to be more careful, to have appropriate safeguards, and to think about the, the human impact. We're not opposed to technological innovation. We're not anti-automation even. We're saying 
let's look for ways to more deliberately create new tasks that humans can do because it's the creation of those new tasks that not only increases the demand for labor over a period of decades, and that has a massive effect on wages and living standards, but actually the new tasks, I think, are embodiment a lot of human creativity. And, and that's what we should be encouraging. So automate the dull, repetitive, backbreaking tasks. Yes, of course, and we've done that a lot over the past thousand years. Create new tasks that, that the, it has to be done by a human that the machines can't do and think about that frontier, that margin. That is an endeavor worth a lot more attention and, 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 and focus and even uh, public resources. So there are two kind of layers of restraint on this technological takeover that you seem to focus on in the book. One is, I guess, regulatory type changes, and, and the other is demonstrations and manifestations of worker power that can counter some of the entrepreneur's monopoly power and strength, if you will. Both of those factors tend to lag behind the advancement of power. How do you expect that they can get a leg up? Well, I think there's a third element, Pedro, which is public opinion, which is more diffuse, harder to control or, or measure, perhaps, but really important in terms of what do people regard as acceptable on surveillance, for example. So do we think surveillance in the workplace or on the streets is appropriate? Do we think it's it's helping people in, in a way that's sensible and, and defensible? Do we think there's enough informed consent? Or do we think we're, we're in danger of becoming more like, let's say, China, where um, surveillance is a tool of the state and, and used to keep people down in terms of social dissent and, and probably also to suppress wages? So I think that's a broader discussion, which we have to have now. And that should affect what we allow and don't allow in terms of and encourage in terms of the development of AI technology. Should we, for example, protect surveillance patents fully, including uh, patents for technology invented by Chinese companies, for example, that they then try to uh, protect in the US market? I'm not sure that we should. With regard to the regulatory changes, of course, those do take time and AI is moving extremely fast. I think that books don't change the world, Pedro. I think events do. But it's really good when events happen to have kicked around ideas and talked about what could work, what, what, what are the possibilities are. I mean, we've seen this in finance plenty of times. The crisis of 2008 was extremely disorienting because we hadn't really thought enough about where regulation was or where regulation should be. It took a few years to get better oriented after that. And, you know, nothing lasts forever in terms of regulation, but that, that was helpful. Worker power, you know, is a very appealing idea. We don't have a lot of it in the US. We don't have trade unions of the form we used to have. And, and so other ways that workers can organize and can ask for things, including safeguards with regard to surveillance, for example, I think that's an important issue. And, and also pressure to, to raise wages for the least well-paid people and to ensure that they participate in the gains from productivity enhancements, for example, due to AI. That's a very important and legitimate topic. Difficult one, though, in the absence of unions. But something that we, we really mustn't uh, forget about. As you did your research, what were some of the more startling historical examples of technological breakthroughs that made life worse for people rather than better? Well, I think it's, it's very interesting when, when you look in the details of the Industrial Revolution, which I have studied quite a lot over, over, uh, over my career, but I hadn't really focused on the fact that, you know, the Industrial Revolution started in earnest by the 1720s. There's a silk mill built outside Derby. And I'm from Sheffield, which is pretty close to Derby. Um, so 1720s Industrial Revolution textiles. In the 1840s, there are very well-documented cases, in fact, widespread practice, of, of young, children as young as six working in coal mines deep underground, pushing carts, heavy carts full of coal with their heads. Wow. 
So that's 120 years, Pedro, 120 years. And after that, by the way, after there were reforms in the mines, which, by the way, the coal mine owners said (laughs) would be disastrous, not just for them, but for capitalism and civilization. So after those reforms went through, which, of course, were not disastrous for anyone, the, and, and after the, the spread of, of broader enfranchisement and, and the growth of trade unions, sort of ch- real change in, in, in British politics. And this, this had um, influence and, and uh, parallels in other industrial and in, in industrializing countries. So let's say 120 years, eventually people start to benefit. But why did they have to wait 120 years? I mean, if I said to you, hey, great news, Pedro, the AI is here, generative AI, it could take over a lot of cognitive tasks that people previously did. Some of them are routine tasks, maybe they were druid tasks, and and everyone's going to benefit in 120 years. I think you would say, all right, Simon, let's speed that up a little bit. What would it take? Why why do we have to wait so long? And I think those, those are fair questions. You know, we are not trying to stop innovation. We are not trying to stop automation, but we are trying to push people to think more positively and, 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 and more affirmatively about what else we need to do to create those new tasks that really drive economies forward. And we think there's a lot of win-win there. You, you, more productivity increase, uh, more uh, interesting work, higher pay. Uh, and we've done this before, but we didn't do it at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And, and I don't think we should just sit around waiting for it to happen now. So one passage in your book that really struck me as relevant to today's labor market, perhaps because we are exiting, you know, a global pandemic, was the labor shortage that followed the Black Death in the in the 14th century. The English aristocracy was up in arms as workers apparently tried to garner higher wages and they tried to stop it with every every power in their toolkit, but it didn't work because the wages kept rising because the, the labor market was so tight. Do you see any parallels between that situation and, and what we're experiencing today, albeit in different degrees? Well, definitely in different degrees. Yeah, sure. There, 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 are, there are parallels. The supply of labor was fell a great deal. And as the economy recovered, the, there was a rise in wages, which the elites really did not appreciate. Uh, I mean, I think that the, the caveat or the cautionary element to emphasize there, Pedro, is that you can't draw a straight line from the Black Death to the, to the Industrial Revolution or the rise of prosperity. Black Death was in the 1300s. The benefits of the Industrial Revolution, as I said, kick in about 500 years later. So it's not the case that just losing a third of the population or reducing labor participation by 5%, that that will necessarily push you into a higher productivity, higher growth, transformational phase. However, it, it did have an effect. You know, supply the laws of laws of supply and demand are generally in effect. And if you reduce the supply of labor, you will have an increase in wages. But where does that go, right? What 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 are you doing with those workers? What's being created in that kind of economy in in the late 1300s, early 1400s? You didn't have the dynamic of entrepreneurship. You didn't have enough new people emerging creating businesses. You didn't have enough connection between thinking about science and technology. We had almost no connection between thinking about science and technology and thinking about practical applications. So th- these are all things that we can do better on, I, w- I would say, Pedro. I mean, we study history, obviously, to try to avoid repeating the mistakes. But I would say more positively, uh, look at the lessons about things that went well. So the U.S. before 1940, this is a topic of my previous book, Jumpstarting America. Before 1940, we put basically zero federal money into research and development. It was all done in the private sector. As a result of the advent of World War II and, and what was learned during World War II, particularly about the development of radar and, of course, nuclear weapons, was the, and, and, and some really important health developments, including the um, development and scaling up of penicillin. So antibiotics were just not a thing widely available before 1940. By 1945, they were saving millions of lives a year around the world. So understanding that science can be harnessed to help people and that the federal government has a role to play 
US federal government has a role to play in, in, in making investments that increase general scientific knowledge. And then you share that broadly, you allow the private sector to commercialize it, you build jobs. I mean, the, the uh, Human Genome Project, which was turned down by venture capitalists in the 1980s because it would generate general knowledge that, that you couldn't, they felt they couldn't appropriate, so they wouldn't get the private benefits. Federal government funds it, costs them, you know, somewhere above $10 billion, creates an industry that now employs about 300,000 people paying good wages and had a key role to play in fighting against COVID. Not everyone agrees that mRNA vaccines were a good thing. I understand that. But personally, I'm a fan. And I think without that scientific, you build scientific capacity, I would say, at a national level, Pedro, for two reasons. First of all, for the things you could, the problems you know you want to solve, like cancer, but also to have the ability to pivot and to say, you know, these smart people just said, they looked at this problem of COVID-19 and the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and they have a potential solution. Let's go and have a look at what they're proposing, right? And, and that's what we did in World War II, and that's what we did after World War II a lot, and that's what we stopped doing in, in recent decades. So Jumpstarting America argued for re-upping that kind of commitment from the public sector. And Power and Progress is basically saying, look, consistent with that, that public sector push, let's be mindful of what the private sector is creating and those private sector dynamics. And let's try to harness them or push them or nudge them in, into ways that actually more directly help people, as opposed to firing a lot of people who used to work at grocery stores and saying, hey, they can figure out what they do next, not our problem. I think that is not a brilliant idea at this stage of economic development. Excellent. We'll leave it there. That was really fascinating. I appreciate your time. That was Dr. Simon Johnson, professor at MIT Sloan School of Management and former IMF chief economist. Thank you so much. Thank you.